I'm Dr. Michelle McMurray-Heath, and you are listening to I Am Bio. We are on a summer break as we work to bring you another exciting season this fall. So for the next few weeks, we're sharing some of our favorite sessions from the June 2021 BioDigital Conference. Today, check out our episode, Breaking Barriers in Science, featuring Dr. Jennifer Doudna, Nobel Laureate, and CRISPR Pioneer. I am really honored to have this opportunity to speak this morning with Dr. Jennifer Doudna. Dr. Doudna is a biochemist, a pioneer of CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing, an author, a serial entrepreneur, and of course, a Nobel laureate. Uh, Jennifer, welcome. Great to be here, Seema. Jennifer, the last time I interviewed you and we spoke, it was you and Emmanuel Charpentier had just won the Paul Janssen Award for Biomedical Research. This was in 2014. And last year, you won the Nobel Prize together. What was your first reaction like when you first learned about that? And what part of that status or experience has surprised you since then? Well, my first reaction was total shock. <laughs> Anybody uh, could ever expect something like that. Um, but you know, it, it. I guess what has surprised me the most is um, the reaction I have uh, I have received from many students that many of whom I don't know who have reached out to me over the intervening months and have expressed their just their joy at you know the, the kind of the celebration of science this year especially now um and the fact that you know two women won this prize i think also has really hit a chord with many especially young girls who are potentially thinking about a career in science and for them and i totally get this you know it's really exciting to see other um, uh, other people um, ahead of you who you can imagine as you know following in their footsteps someday. Yeah, that's wonderful. I mean, I think uh, women all over the globe, as well as young girls, I think we're very excited to see two women win. And so, congratulations again. Now, of course, the original 2012 paper um, in science that described CRISPR and Cas9 has become one of the most cited research paper. Yeah, you know, even after, uh, you know, it's only been less than a decade. Um, when did you realize, I mean, did you even realize early uh, that this discovery was generating the kind of attention um, and, and that your prior research and how, I mean, how, what was your reaction to the kind of attention it was getting? Well, when, you know, when we were doing that original research with Emmanuel Charpentier's lab, I think all of us had a sense that we were onto something very exciting. And of course, we didn't know exactly where it was headed at the time, but it was, it was clear from you know, really those very early days that the CRISPR system, which is naturally an adaptive immune system in bacteria, had properties that were very interesting, not only biologically, but also at, at potentially as a technology. And, um, but, you know, again, none of us at the time could have predicted how things would unfold. I think that, you know, I've been astounded, quite frankly, at the pace at which the CRISPR technology for genome editing and all of the, you know, associated uh, applications of the technology 
how fast that really has happened. Because as you said, our work was published in the summer of 2012. And here we are, uh, what, about, you know, nine years later, and um, already there are, you know, patients that have been cured of sickle cell disease using CRISPR. Um, multiple clinical trials are underway, many more that will get started in the next year or two. And of course, lots and lots of fundamental research that's been enabled by this technology. So it's just been incredibly exciting and I'm, I'm just, I'm honored to be part of it. I have to say, I'm, I feel, I feel just, you know, joy, I guess, at the, you know, the ability to be part of that scientific wave. Yeah. I mean, you know, science is great, uh, but the impact and the practical applications of that science, when it starts to make an impact on human beings, you know, that, that is really, I'm guessing very fulfilling. Um, so speaking of applications and, you know, real life applications for CRISPR-Cas9, uh, what do you see, uh, you know, is furthest along in creating those kinds of benefits for people today? And what applications of gene editing are you more excited about as you look forward to the next few years, um, you know, and more applications to come? I, I think the potential to uncover both the genetics of disease, so using CRISPR as a research tool, and then coupling it with its ability to actually work as a therapy um, is, is quite exciting. So already, um, you know, we're seeing opportunities to cure genetic diseases of the blood, the eye, of the liver. Um, those are some of the easier cell types and tissues to deliver the CRISPR uh, molecules too. But, you know, over time, it'll become possible, I, I think, to introduce CRISPR molecules into any cell type. Um, you know, we're, we're actively researching right now uh, ways of using CRISPR in the brain, uh, ways of using it to uh, treat cancer. And, um, you know, these are, these are, are, are hard, you know, tough challenges, but I, I think that this is where the future lies, is really in using the technology to, to treat or, or frankly, even to cure some of the most challenging diseases that we face. You know, time and time again, um, we've seen this happen. And that is, you know, you have a breakthrough technology or breakthrough science that comes through, whether it's a human genome project or it's, uh, you know, uh, cleaving the genome or a genome editing, uh, cloning, et cetera. And there's always concerns that come up with uh, technology. The, the public does wonder, you know, has, can science go too far? Um, and what does the same apply to, you know, uh, CRISPR? And what uh, are you most concerned about with gene editing? And where should scientists be getting involved in actually explaining what gene editing is to the public and discussing frameworks um, to make sure that uh, science is uh, benefiting society and not creating any ethical um, concerns. Yeah, well, there's a lot there. I'll, I'll try to unpack that a little bit. Um, yeah, I think I think it's first of all really important for scientists to be engaging with um, with the you know a broader community about the work that we do. That's that's so important. We've seen over the I've seen, seen certainly during my my career so far that you know, there's a kind of been a growing distrust of science and scientists. It's really unfortunate. I think that um, uh, partly scientists are to blame. I think we need to be better at uh, explaining what we do, why we do it, why it has value to society. 
And as you pointed out, when new technologies come along, they often come along with the uh, you know risk and with with uh, ethical challenges even. And that's certainly true for CRISPR because the potential to manipulate DNA in cells and and you know change the code of life means that we have opportunities that you know that are realities now that that didn't exist beforehand. And, and so I'll give two examples. One is changing the human germline. So mm -hmm. making uh, permanent changes in eggs or sperm or embryos that become part of an individual if they were used to create a pregnancy and they, they can be passed on to future generations. So that's clearly a, a really profound uh, way of using genome editing. And the scientific community around the world is still grappling with how to, how to manage that. How do we think about that? Is that something that uh, should happen, and if it should, then how and when and who decides and all of those big questions are, are kind of out there. So I've been really involved over the last few years in that conversation. I'm really happy that many organizations have teamed together, especially some of the, the scientific societies in different countries. And in fact, I'm an organizer of the third international summit on that topic that will be held in London next spring. So there's a very active engagement um, of the scientific community worldwide to, you know, be on top of, of this issue and, and make recommendations to governments and regulatory agencies, etc. The other area of, um, of risk is, um, is something that is called gene drives, which is using CRISPR in a way that can spread genetic traits quickly through certain types of organisms, such as mosquitoes, other kinds of, uh, of insects. Uh, you can imagine the public health benefit of controlling mosquito populations, but also potential environmental risk if that were to be out of control. So again, I think there's been very active engagement of the scientific community in understanding that uh, a use of CRISPR, but also thinking about appropriate ways to ensure that um, that, that type of research is done safely. And then I'll just mention one other thing, and that is, you know, really thinking about access, because to me, a big risk actually is that uh, people who need to have access to CRISPR can't get it because it's either too expensive or it's just inaccessible for other reasons. So I think that, you know, we need to, again, we being kind of the royal we, the scientific community, and this involves both academics and companies really need to team up and figure out ways to reduce costs, to find ways to scale the technology so that that makes it more widely available. And then of course, to develop the, the technology in the future so that it can be delivered safely, um, you know, for the sickle cell disease program, it would be obviously transformative if we could deliver CRISPR without uh, requiring a bone marrow transplant for each patient, which is the yeah. case right now. So that's something that I think will also be, um, you know, developed in the future. Yeah, especially for resource limited settings, you know, you have to simplify it so that it's easily accessible. Um, sticking with this topic of uh, trust and scientific trust, we have a question from the audience, uh, especially topical now as we deal with COVID vaccines. Um, so the audience question is that given the new attention from media for biomedicine because of COVID vaccines and looking ahead, where should scientists be getting involved to explain gene editing to the public to improve receptivity and reduce public fears? Now, you've spoken about some of the things you're already doing, but how do you engage the public and keep take it beyond the scientific community? 
I think it has to involve uh, multiple types of media. So, you know, doing these types of events is obviously good, but, you know, this is not, not necessarily reaching a, you know, a, a broader uh, non-scientific yeah. audience. Correct. And so I think, you know, it, engaging with um, uh, storytellers, whether it's writers, um, screenwriters, you know, people that are making Netflix series. And, you know, some people here listening may know that, CRISPR has already been featured in, in a few of those types of things. But, you know, I think, I think that's actually a good thing as long as the science is accurate, because it does help to introduce scientific concepts in a, in a way that is more interesting and, and more palatable, maybe, and more accessible to people that are not specialists. So I think that is very important. But again, you need scientists engaged because they need to provide the background that allows those storytellers to, to get the facts right. Absolutely. Uh, we'll come back to this other audience questions later, but there is a comment here about patient advocacy groups also being able to play a, a yeah, key role. Absolutely. So, yeah. And, you know, we'll come back to this question again, but let's talk a little bit about, you know, career and your advice uh, for people in the, in the scientific fields. Um, what advice do you have for researchers who are early in their career? about the dynamism of you know, global research now and what to prioritize in their work and what to deprioritize in their work. Because you know, the explosion of stuff that's going on around the world is just, you know, it's an ocean. So how do you prioritize? Right, well, you're, you're absolutely right that it can feel overwhelming. There's so much going on and, you know, and, and going on in, in many countries. And we all feel the the influx of you know information and data that come in every day you can't can't get your mind around all of it right it's it's, yeah. it's extraordinary I, I think it's still important though to follow your heart you know follow your passion and identify things that you feel personally interested and engaged in doing I know that's really been important for my own career and for people that I've had the good fortune to mentor is that and I think that's my job now as a mentor really is to help people figure out what it is that they feel really passionate about doing and then help them do it to the very, very best of their ability. And when you do that, great things happen generally, you know, and I think the other, the other uh, really important thing to keep in mind um, is to not be dissuaded by, you know, by, by naysayers or, you know, people that are doubters, I guess, you know, you have to be willing to trust your own, your own gut instinct. If you think an idea is interesting and worth pursuing, even if you have people telling you that it's not, you know, uh, something that will work out, if you believe that it is, it's really important to keep going. Because I think that's often where breakthroughs are made are, are in areas where, you know, people aren't, aren't working or don't think there's something interesting there. That's certainly true for CRISPR. Yes, absolutely. What great advice. Um, now, obviously you are a scientist, but you're also a successful entrepreneur with your own experiences. And so what advice would you have for somebody else who's in a similar position? And the most helpful piece of advice that you received as an entrepreneur and that advice that you would pass along to others. I guess the most helpful advice I've received and experienced is that it's always all about people. 
Yep. Um, if you have a great a great idea but not a great team, um, that's um, a lot worse of a situation than if you have a mediocre idea but a great team. <laughs> in my experience, because and I see this in my own even in my own academic lab, you know, you know, ideas come and go, and you know, some ideas work out and some of them don't. But if you have somebody who's really engaged and you know really digging in. Uh, they can they can pivot, you know, when when an idea doesn't doesn't pan out, and they do something else that's interesting. And I think the same is true for for companies and for teams that um, that you know you you uh, you start off on a path, and you know nine times out of ten the path takes a turn that you don't ex expect. But if the team is is ready and 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 you know you know flexible and and working together well, then they can take advantage of that and. And do something else that's interesting. So, I've learned that lesson maybe over and over again uh, over the years, and it's still very true. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's a myth, isn't it, that uh, science happens sort of in by an individual in a lab? Uh, you know, science has become more and more of a team exercise, and the better of a team you have, uh, you know, the better off as you are as an individual scientist as well. Um, so that is that is that is great advice. Um, obviously, this past year and a half, to repeat a very often repeated word, has been unprecedented. I mean, completely, who would have thought that we would ever go through an experience like that? And it has impacted so many different things in our lives. How has it impacted, and obviously, I mean, the pandemic and COVID-19 impacted um, the way scientific collaborators work? I mean, has it increased collaboration, decreased collaboration, especially as we've seen nationalistic sentiments arise, you know, in terms of in the in the area of vaccines. What does it bode for scientific collaborations? I hope it I hope it bodes well. I think it does. Certainly in my own, you know, experience and observation, we've seen amazing examples of collaboration over the last year and a half that has has made it possible to, you know, address the the pandemic as as has happened and uh, and that's of course ongoing. Um and then also to make you know, other associated things possible. So for example, at our institute, the Innovative Genomics Institute in the Bay Area, we ended up setting up a clinical testing lab last March that, you know, is the first time on the University of California Berkeley campus, which is not a medical school, that we've had that kind of a clinical research. It's clinical, but it's also a research lab mm -hmm. running COVID-19 tests. But, um, but because we're embedded in a research community, we've also been able to use that as a way to do a lot of, of research and development. So for example, we're developing new CRISPR-based diagnostics for viruses, which I, we hope will be useful in uh, sort of pandemic preparedness in the future. Yeah. We've been able to reduce the cost of doing COVID-19 testing. Originally, it was costing us about $80 a test with commercial reagents. And through research done by our students and, and postdocs in the testing lab, we're now, uh, it's like $1.49 a test. I mean, it's really, <laughs> it's quite amazing, you know, extraordinary uh, cost savings there. And just increasing the throughput, we were at one point doing over 20,000 tests a week 
Uh, fortunately, wow. we don't have to do that now because of the uh, every, a lot of people are getting vaccinated. But um, I think that's just a great example of the, you know, and I think many of our students realize, wow, you can get a lot done very quickly when you work together and, uh, you know, sort of focus on a goal. And so I think that's something that is a very important lesson that all of us will take into the future. And I've heard this from a lot of, of people, uh, you know, both companies and and academics, that it, that basically last year dropped what they whatever it was they were doing, and started uh, doing something that was relevant, directly relevant to the pandemic, and then you know saw amazing speed in what they were able to achieve. That is great. I mean, you spoke a little bit. You mentioned the Innovative uh, Genomics Institute. Talk a little bit about its mission and the impact that the Institute is, is having and what you hope for its future. A few years ago, right after Emmanuel Charpentier and I had published our, our first paper together, I went to our dean at the University of California, uh, Berkeley, and I said, you know, something extraordinary is, is, is happening right now. And I said, we need to be really thinking about how we're going to develop this powerful technology and doing it not in, you know, not just sort of, and of course there were many people with the same thought, but, um, but I said, you know, we need to do this. We're a public university. We need to think about how this technology is going to impact people globally and how to make sure that we get it into their hands and, and control the costs of, of applications of CRISPR. That's something that we can uniquely do in a nonprofit setting. Fortunately, our dean agreed and we set up the institute. And then we've been very fortunate to have philanthropic uh, support over the years that has enabled us to now establish two big programs. One is in health, uh, sort of healthcare, and the other is in uh, climate change. And so we have a big environmental effort. Uh, but we also have um, a, a very powerful collaboration with UC San Francisco uh, and their clinicians to do things in the healthcare space that will take advantage of CRISPR's capabilities. And so, for example, we were very pleased a few months ago to receive approval from the Food and Drug Administration um, to begin a clinical trial for sickle cell disease using a strategy that ultimately we think will be a lot more um, uh, efficient and we hope cost-effective for patients. So that trial is actually starting this summer and we hope that's the first of multiple uh, trials that we'll be able to start at the Institute and then partner with, uh, with companies as those move forward so that we can really uh, accelerate the pace at which the technology can be used in the clinic. That is that's that's fantastic and 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 good luck and uh, it, you know it's something that the world needs. So um, you know we are we're here at this bio convention and as you know bio uniquely brings together you know healthcare therapeutics nutrition green manufacturing you know all of that together and so this is um, actually a question that comes from uh, an audience member. Looking at food and farming, how can we use gene editing to enhance nutrition, wellness, and environmental sustainability? Great question. Yeah, that's that. I think that is honestly that is probably an area where CRISPR will have a large impact soonest. You know, yeah. before before um, you know it becomes a standard of care at, in the clinic. I think it will likely be a technology that's used in. Um, in controlling the effects of climate change in different ways and addressing 
the needs of you know nutritional needs as the you know the world population is uh, you know in increasing and and where there are demands in different parts of the world for better nutrition, better yields, um, drought resistant crops, those sorts of things. And I'll just say that you know one of the things that's quite extraordinary about about CRISPR is that it's it's a really a cross cutting technology. So it you know it, it it works on DNA. Anything that has DNA is a subject for this technology, which means that plant breeders are in, increasingly able to use CRISPR based tools to manipulate the genes in plants. And what's quite interesting there is that it's a precision tool. So you know, plant breeding has been going on for, you know, forever, as long as, certainly as long as there have been humans um, who have been doing any kind of agriculture, we've been selecting for plants that have properties that we want. And um, up until CRISPR, it, you know, those uh, selections for plant traits had to be made on, you know, plants that had random mutations introduced into the DNA. But with CRISPR, we now can, you know, make precision changes. And so this is a, a, a great opportunity. It's really a kind of a change in the way that plant breeders even think about their work, because it's so it speeds up the pace of what they're doing tremendously. It also gives them, like everybody else, a tool for understanding the function of genes and, and multiple sets of genes. So that's all going on as well. So I think over the next few years, we're really going to see a rapid acceleration of uh, the use of CRISPR in agriculture. And a big question kind of goes back to an earlier topic we talked about, SEMA, which is, you know, uh, how will that be viewed by the public? How will it be regulated? Um, you know, these are all key questions that, again, at the Innovative Genomics Institute, we're involved in uh, discussing as well. That's, uh, that's, that's great, actually. That's a good segue into a question, actually, that comes from the audience. But before I ask that question, uh, I'm envisioning, and maybe not to overstate things, but, you know, world hunger has been an issue that we haven't solved for eons, for centuries. And perhaps, you know, something like a technology like uh, CRISPR-Cas9, um, you know, could come to the rescue um, in, in, in making big, big steps towards solving that problem. Is that even feasible? Well, I think it has a role to play. I mean, I think, you know, the, it's, it's obviously a complicated geopolitical uh, problem as well, just, you know, get, getting, getting food where it needs to go um, in a timely fashion. But certainly having the ability to manipulate different types of plants in terms of controlling crop yields, um, again, drought resistance, uh, a, a number of uh, groups and, and uh, teams that I'm aware of are working on cassava, which is an important uh, crop in various parts of the world, and removing natural toxins that are found in that, in that plant so that it actually you know, increases the nutritional value and utility of the, of the plant. That kind of thing, I think, is going to be really impactful. And the more that we can help local farmers understand the technology, at least enough to know that, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, a safe tool, that, um, that it has real value for them. I think this is going to be key. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you raise an important uh, point there as well, because it's not just about the science. Science is part of the, the whole solution, but there's also a whole host of policy um, that needs to come into play. And so a question actually from the audience, what are the top educational issues that can be elevated to the attention of public? Uh, and what are the top um, policy issues that we might contribute to? 
Well, um, certainly understanding the basics of genetics is is important. It, you know, it, um, it, I think it's yeah, it's interesting that you know I think a lot of people um, really don't uh, don't necessarily understand. Um, genetics works. Yeah. yeah how, right. Yeah. Exactly. You know, uh -huh. how, 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 I mean, why should they, you know, but, yeah. but I think, yeah. I think just how, you know, helping people to have a basic understanding of how, how genetics works, how mm -hmm. traits are, are passed on, um, understanding that, you know, some diseases result from changes in our DNA, others don't, you know, COVID-19 is a, you know, an infection, right? It's not mm -hmm. something that uh, is, is uh, encoded in our genes. However, it is something that potentially, you know, some people are more resistant to than others or react differently to an infection that actually could have to do with our genes. So uh, I do think that's, that's really important. And, um, and then I think just encouraging a feeling of partnership with science, I think is very important that we feel like, you know, that there's a, there's a community here. Scientists are part of it, but so is everybody else. And, that, 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 you know, we're kind of all in this together rather than uh, uh, sort of the sense that I, I sort of feel has come up over the last two or three decades, maybe at least here in America, where there's a, you know, a, a distrust right. in science yeah. and people not uh, wanting to listen to scientists or thinking that they're motivated by, you know, something other than, you know, going after the truth. And so I think that that's, that's a really, really important aspect of this as well. Yeah, it's, that's important because, you know, we need, we really need to bring society and science together and, you know, not have that divide, which is an important part of the policy work, I think, that uh, you're passionate about as well. I think we, uh, we, we have maybe time for one or two more questions, um, uh, but let me, let me just ask you about the pandemic, as we look forward to moving out of the pandemic, I mean, what gives you hope um, for you know, for the future, what is what? What gives you the most hope? I should say. Well, I guess I would start by saying that what a triumph for science that we're actually able to see the light at the end of the tunnel right now. I think with the pandemic, at least in some parts of the world, and I, I, it'll happen. You know, I think globally over time as well. Um, vaccines, obviously, front and center. You know, uh, extraordinary work uh, there on the part of many, many people who have been part of that effort, and and a, a real success for science because the reason we have vaccines is because of all of the fundamental scientific research that's gone on. You know, over the last uh, couple of decades, and um, you know, I've I've had a number of people say to me, well, you know, if the pandemic had happened even a few years ago it might've been very difficult to deal with it or deal with it quickly as has happened here. So I think that's one thing that, uh, you know, that um, I, I really hope that that message is, is, um, is stated over and over because it's, it's so important. Yeah. And, and then, you know, as you said, Seema, I think also it's, it's, you know, thinking about opportunities to um, build on some of the things that we've, we've seen happening during the pandemic, namely, teamwork, collaboration, partnerships that happened that, you know, maybe wouldn't have come about otherwise, but now that they're, they're established, uh, we can use them to do new things, develop new technologies, um, you know, take the ideas that have come out of 
some of the vaccination programs, for example? And, you know, are there other ways to think about using those technologies and those approaches for other, other types of disease? I think there's, there's a lot of potential there. Absolutely. And I mean, you spoke about collaboration and collaboration has sort of defined the past year, you know, across multiple institutions. And I think the other thing that also has some, you know, sort of come out of the shadows is the importance of academic institutions collaborating with industry and how that translation is really important for to bring science, you know, to society, into actual products, vaccines, whatever it is uh, that are important for public health. Talk a little bit about, you know, the academic industry collaboration and why that is important and what the pandemic has taught us in that respect. Well, one of the things that I've learned over my career so far is that academics and industry play different and complementary roles in in both discoveries and development of, of those discoveries and technologies. So, you know, typically academic labs are great at doing innovative work, at kind of, you know, uh, curiosity-driven science that goes in unexpected directions um, is kind of the name of the game in, in academic labs. And, uh, and that, that is a real driver of innovation and new technologies that, you know, is, well, you know, well, well, well suited to an academic setting where you have students coming in and they're working on, on projects that are exciting to them and it's part of their educational process, not well suited to a for-profit setting where, you know, you have timelines and you've got to, you've got to make products and, and you've got to get things, things done that are going to have commercial value. However, uh, the flip side is that um, that industry is much better suited to roll out uh, ideas, develop them so that they can be much more broadly accessible. Uh, again, vaccines, great, great example of this, right? A lot of the early work it, that, you know, is the foundations of different vaccination strategies did come out of academic research, but uh, it really took industrial uh, teams to turn those into actual robust technologies that could be utilized in, you know, millions or even billions of, of people. So we need to find better ways, I feel, to, you know, marry those two uh, types of, of approaches. And again, at our institute, we are very actively pursuing different types of collaborations with industry. We often find that industrial teams can give academics a much better handle on what are the real bottlenecks in you know, a particular therapeutic approach, a disease that, that seems intractable. Here's a problem that we're struggling with. It, it's helpful for academics to, to hear about that because they can then focus their efforts in some ways on, on those kinds of, of challenges. And likewise, I think it's really, you know, there's just, there's a lot of complementarity in the in the types of thinking of industrial versus academic teams. So I think the more that we can find ways to bring the right groups together, uh, we're going to see you know accelerated advances that take advantage of innovation, but quickly you know get them to a point where they're actually useful in a practical setting. Absolutely, because there are still so many healthcare challenges that we still need to solve for the world, and not to, not only in healthcare but also in food and environment and fuel. Uh, there's so much, so much, so many things to solve. So the acceleration and the collaboration is important. Um, one more question from the audience, uh, Jennifer: What's your vision for how scientific research and regulations for innovative technologies would evolve in the next decade? 
Well, so far, at least we've seen just acceleration of, of <laughs> all of that, right? It just, I, I always think, you know, it can't go any faster and then it does, you know? <laughs> So I, I suspect we're going to continue to see that kind of accelerated pace of, of science and, and research, but also development of, of ideas um, as practical uh, applications. I think we'll see increasing, uh, you know, people have said, well, you know, um, this is the age of biology. Maybe that's true. I think, you know, biology has really become an information science, and I think we will see increasing you know, opportunities mm -hmm. to um, have, you know, uh, bio biological experimental work coupled with uh, computational approaches, especially to data analysis and predictions and things like that, that will, again, probably increase the pace of, of the work that we're all doing, but also open new doors. I mean, what an exciting time to be going into this field, quite frankly. I think the opportunities are just expanding. Yeah, and we've seen what we can do, science, science and technology coming together with, you know, multiple institutions uh, in, the, in, the, in the pandemic the past year. So, so there is reason to hope that, you know, we will be in a great place to solve many of the world's challenges. One final um, question for you, um, your message uh, to young students, international students and scholars, uh, but also young students who are, you know, hoping to follow in your footsteps and also young uh, women scientists who are hoping to follow in your, in your footsteps. What's your message to them? Go for it. Don't <laughs> 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 we'll let everybody hold you back. You know, I, I, I think anybody can, can do this. I, I really do. I think it's a wonderful career and uh, I, I think we just, you know, we benefit, we all benefit when we have a diversity of people participating in these types of, of approaches. So I welcome uh, everyone to the field. And I think that, uh, you know, I, I just think you have to be um, pursuing your passions. That is a wonderful note to leave it on. Uh, Jennifer, thank you again for spending this morning with us and for all your inspirational message and, and good luck to you. and. Uh, Hope that we will be solving a lot more problems uh, in the future years. Thank you so much. Indeed. Thank you, Seema. Great to see you here. Good to see you as well. Thank you for listening to I Am Bio. We will be back in September with a brand new season.